The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode series, our goal is to fully equip ourselves with a complete historical and cultural understanding of Jesus' I Am statements as revealed within God's Word, the Bible. While the subject matter may not be completely new ground, I have an abiding faith that any time we approach God's Word with a sincere and earnest desire to learn, we cannot help and will not fail to deepen a greater understanding and appreciation of God's nature and deity from a diligent Berean study of His Word, the Bible. In the previous three episodes, we began a journey to deepen our understanding of Jesus' I Am statements found within the New Testament. It is my contention that these various statements, when viewed properly, clearly draw a straight line identifying Jesus' divinity and recognition as the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, the Lord of life, and the King of Kings. 
In episodes 1 and 2, we completed a search of Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, along with a survey of the Old Testament in Hebrew, as well as the Septuagint Greek regarding God's revelation to Moses and to extension to his people of God's character or name. In part 3, we began our survey in earnest with a study of Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22 regarding Jesus' I Am statements under oath to the high priest during his trial. In this episode, we continue with John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, quote, when, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, unquote. Verse 4 says, quote, And he, i.e. Jesus, must needs go through Samaria. Now, the first thing we need to do is to establish a bit of a geography lesson. Here, we are talking about the layout of Israel during Jesus' day. On the left, or western border of Israel, we have the Mediterranean Sea. On the eastern side of Israel, we have the Dead Sea on the southern end of Israel. The Jordan River then intersects north and south between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee on the northern end of Israel. In between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, there is Judea on the south end of Israel, Samaria, and then Galilee. So in effect, Samaria is between Judea and Galilee. The occupants of Samaria were called Samaritans. The Jews and the Samaritans did not get along well. As you may recall, the nation of Israel was divided shortly after the death of King Solomon. Ten of the tribes of Israel remained in the north part of Israel under King Rehoboam, and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed in the south part of Israel where Jerusalem was. Shortly after the division, Jeroboam ceased worship to Yahweh in Jerusalem and instead set up sacrifice and worship to false idols in Dan and Bethel. Eventually, Israel's disobedience and compromise with false gods led to their captivity to the Assyrians. Once Israel was in exile captivity, some few Jews who remained began intermarrying with the Gentile Assyrian peoples of this area. The resultant progeny of these two people groups were referred to as Samaritans because they lived in the area of Samaria. Later, the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin were defeated and taken into captivity in Babylon. Eventually, these two tribes were released and allowed to return to Jerusalem, where they were given permission to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed during their defeat. The Samaritans resisted and thwarted Judah and Benjamin in their efforts to rebuild the temple for a period of 15 years, which further caused enmity. 
The pattern of intermarriage became so common that it spread to the southern kingdom and to Jerusalem itself. Eventually, Elishab, who was the high priest in the Jewish temple, married a non-Jewish woman and thereby disqualified himself from serving as high priest. As a result, Nehemiah was forced to drive Elishab from Jerusalem to prevent him from profaning the temple. Sanballat, who was the grandfather of Elishab and also the governor of Samaria, then had a temple built on Mount Gerizim, where he installed Elishab as high priest so that he could function in that capacity. The Samaritans then began to make the claim that Mount Gerizim was the true dwelling place of the Lord, where his temple was and where worship should be, and not Jerusalem. This, more than anything else, caused the full break between Jews and Samaritans. This rivalry continued for several hundred years until 128 BC, when the Samaritans aligned themselves with the Seleucid in the Maccabean Wars. During these conflicts, the Jews destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. About the time of Jesus' birth, a band of Samaritans scattered human bones in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in order to defile and profane the temple. Thus, by the first century, both the Jewish and the Samaritan priests were teaching that one another were impure and that it was sinful to speak or to have contact with the other. Returning to John chapter 4, verse 4, we see that in order for Jesus to travel from Judea to Galilee, he would either have to go straight through Samaria to Galilee, or he would have to go around Samaria and cross the Jordan River twice in order to get to Galilee. Now, in general, during Jesus' day, there are two ways to go from Judea to Galilee. One, directly through Samaria where the route is shorter, but A, Jew and Samaritan relations were very strained. B, where ultra-Orthodox Jews would consider contact with Samaritans to make them unclean and see where robbers and thieves would lie in wait and attack passerbys, or two, go around, which A, would require crossing the Jordan River twice, and B, where the route that they had to take was twice as long in order to get there. While it is possible that Jesus could have taken either route, what is most illustrative is two things. First is the language in the passage. Second is the actual incident and context of the encounter Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. Let's look at the language of the text in John chapter 4, verse 4. Quote, And he, i.e. Jesus, must needs go through Samaria, unquote. The phrase, quote, must needs, unquote, can mean simply that someone needs to do something in a general sense. However, the phrase, quote, must needs, unquote, can also mean, quote, 
necessity established by the counsel and decree of God, especially by that purpose of his, which relates to the salvation of men by the intervention of Christ and which is disclosed in the Old Testament prophecies." Unquote. In other words, in keeping with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus was en route to an appointment made from the foundation of the world. Moving on, we come to verse 5 and 6, which says, quote, Then cometh he, i.e. Jesus, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour." Unquote. At this point, Jesus is in the heart of Samaria in a city named Sychar, or Shechem. Secondly, we are told that Jesus is at Jacob's well, which is the same well discussed in Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 10. Thirdly, we are told that Jesus was at this location about the sixth hour, which is noon. Finally, we are told that Jesus sat on the well. Continuing in verses 7 through 9, we read the following, quote, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink for his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans." Unquote. In these verses, we learn that as Jesus is sitting on the well, a Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water. When she arrives, Jesus asks the woman to give him a drink. This is unusual from a Jewish Orthodox perspective because by tradition, strictly speaking, rabbis were forbidden from speaking to a woman in public, even if it was their daughter or wife. It is doubly taboo because the woman in question was a Samaritan. Here, not only does Jesus talk to a Samaritan woman, but in fact asks a favor requesting her to provide him with a drink. Consequently, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus the obvious question as to why Jesus, a Jew, would ask her for a drink when Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. In verse 10, Jesus has now set the stage and turned the tables to begin revealing his, quote, must-needs, unquote, purpose in this appointment. Quote, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water, unquote. Here, Jesus is combining two things which build a bridge from the unfolding situation at hand to the theological doctrine of biblical salvation. 
The first is Jesus's reference to, quote, the gift of God, unquote. In this case, quote, the gift of God, unquote, in this context, is that unmerited grace which God gives to those whom he has chosen by his sovereign will to be his elect, or outcalled ones, his bride, the church. Paul says this best in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Quote, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unquote. Apparently, this was knowledge which the Samaritan woman and others did not possess. The second thing that she and others did not know was who Jesus was. Had she and others known then, like John would have been able to say, quote, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, unquote. The second thing Jesus is using is the situation. In this case, the Samaritan woman has likely been coming to this particular well every day for years. Every day, the woman would fill her pitcher with water from the well. Every day, she would drink or use the water she had drawn, and the next day, the woman would return for more because the water only provided temporary relief for her thirst. Jesus knows this and tells her that he can provide living water to her, which, if she drinks, she will never thirst. So essentially, this is a conversation which best suited the stage backdrop of the presence of this well and the woman's need for water in order for Jesus to make this allegory. Having offered to quench the Samaritan woman's thirst, the Samaritan woman makes the following observation in verse 11. Quote, the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Unquote. So, as the, quote, must needs, unquote, appointment unfolds here, we see that the woman is under the incorrect belief that Jesus is referring to his ability to provide living water as something which is related to the physical well to which she has been visiting every day. Secondly, she sees a problem since Jesus does not have any device by which he can reach and draw the water from the physical well. She then asks the loaded question, quote, Where will you get this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Unquote. This is now the second mention of the patriarch Jacob in this particular well where this encounter is underway. Since this is the case, let us digress to Genesis chapter 29, where Jacob and this well are first mentioned. In this story, Jacob left home with the familial blessing 
and with Esau on his heels seeking to kill Jacob for supposedly stealing the blessing. Jacob then has his dream about the ladder reaching to heaven. Afterwards, Jacob continues on to fulfill his father's command to the house of Bethuel to find a wife. With this, we pick up the narrative in verses 1 through 3. Quote, Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people of the east. And he looked, and behold, a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the sheep, and put the stone again on the well's mouth in his, in his place." Unquote. In this Genesis account, Jacob is in future Samaria as at the same well which is near, named Sychar or Shechem. In verse 6, Rachel, Jacob's eventual future wife, arrives at the well and meets Jacob. We continue the story in verses 7 through 10. Quote, and he said, Lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together. Water ye the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, and then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his brother, mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near, and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother." Unquote. At this point, I believe it would be both productive and instructive to compare the similarities and differences between Genesis 29 and John 4 to see what we have in common. 1. Both John 4 and Genesis 29 deal with this same geographical location in Sychar or Shechem, which is in Samaria. 2. Both incidents deal with the same well where the local inhabitants go to draw water for people and their flocks. 3. Both incidents occur at the same time of day, i.e. the sixth hour, 12 o'clock noon in John chapter 4 verse 6, and high day, i.e. 12 noon in Genesis chapter 29 verse 7. 4. Both incidents deal with a woman coming to the well to draw water and a man who also comes to the well and meets the woman. 5. Both meetings result in a relationship between the man and the woman. In the case of Jacob, he found his beloved physical wife. 
In the case of Jesus, he established a spiritual relationship with someone whom he called out as being his spiritual bride and a member of his church. This was true not just of the Samaritan woman, but all those Samaritans who subsequently came into a relationship with Jesus as a result. 6. Both meetings involved a flock. In Jacob's case, there were flocks of sheep which were watered from Jacob's well. In the case of Jesus, there were the Samaritans who became his, i.e. Jesus' flock, and drank from the living waters of Jesus' well. And finally, seven, in the case of Jacob's well, there was, quote, a great stone that sat upon the well's mouth, unquote, which had to be moved to obtain the water from the well. In the case of John chapter 4, it is Jesus, the, quote, unquote, rock, who sits upon the mouth of the well. There is no way to obtain the living waters other than by going through Jesus, who is the only source of living waters. This is why we do not find mention of a physical, quote-unquote, great stone on Jacob's well in John chapter 4, because Jesus is that great stone. In the end... What we find is that God set the stage in Genesis chapter 29 as a type casting a shadow 2,000 years plus into the future to the substance, Jesus, who then fulfills this type as a, quote, must-needs, unquote, appointment. This appointment is the first in a series of events meant to open the door of God's salvation to the Samaritans, and to all Gentiles. As we look more broadly at this theory, many Messianic scholars see Genesis 29 as a compass pointing towards the eventual Messiah and his mission to save his chosen people. Clearly, this is the scarlet thread which weaves its way throughout all Scripture. In line with this, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 and 3 summarizes this perfectly. Quote, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation, unquote. Looking at the Hebrew here in this verse is revealing. Quote, Behold, El is my Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, Yiweh, is my strength and my song. He also has become my Yeshua, Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of Yeshua, unquote. In keeping with our episode topic today, we could paraphrase this verse theologically as follows, quote, Behold, God is Jesus, who is salvation. 
I will trust and not be afraid. For the one who exists, Yiwei, is my strength and my song. He also has become my Jesus, i.e. salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw waters out of the wells of Jesus, i.e. my salvation." Unquote. Here, one can immediately see how this theological prophecy from Isaiah fits hand in glove with the substantive encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. This is again in keeping with the, quote, must-needs appointment to which the Holy Spirit inspires John to use such language in order to red-flag the story for those with discernment. While not everyone will make a connection between Isaiah chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 and John chapter 4, the fact is that Orthodox Jews still recite Isaiah 12 at the conclusion of every Sabbath because they are looking forward to a Messiah who will provide the living waters of salvation to their thirsty souls. It is also not coincidental that in addition to the fact that Jesus and the Samaritan woman meet in this, quote, must-needs appointment at the sixth hour, i.e. noon, that doing a survey of Scripture, every mention of the sixth hour has a significant event tied to it. Number one, in John chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus is presented to the Jews by Pilate as their king about the, quote, sixth hour, unquote, in preparation for his crucifixion. Two, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and Luke chapter 23, verse 44, we are told that during Jesus' crucifixion, there was darkness over the land from the, quote, sixth to the ninth hour, unquote. Number three, finally, and most appropriately, in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, Peter is on the housetop praying about the, quote, sixth hour, unquote, when God reveals his commission to Cornelius, and by extension, all Gentile peoples. This is particularly significant since both Acts chapter 10 and John chapter 4 share the common denominators of the sixth hour and God's revelation of salvation to the Gentiles. Having looked at Genesis chapter 29 and its similarities, let's return to John chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Quote, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither 
come hither to draw, unquote. So here, Jesus draws a dichotomy between the world of religion, or philosophy, and himself. In the world of religions and philosophy, no matter what they are, mankind will always find himself empty, thirsty, and returning daily to vainly trying to fill the void of his soul. It is only through the well of salvation which is found in Jesus that we can find everlasting life. By God's grace, may we, like the woman, earnestly say to Christ, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. Having said this, we know that Jesus is speaking of spiritual thirst of the soul, whereas we see that the Samaritan woman confuses physical thirst in its place, since she makes that comment, quote, neither come hither to draw, unquote. This is because she thought that Jesus' spiritual water springing to eternal life would preclude her from ever drinking physical water, and thus she would never have to return to the physical well. Since she is still confused, Jesus provides clarity via his knowledge of all things in verses 16 through 19. Quote, Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, unquote. Clearly, Jesus knew that this woman had had multiple marriages with multiple husbands and was now in a relationship with a man who wasn't her husband. So, on a basic level, Jesus was using his omniscience to demonstrate his divinity to the woman. In a broader spiritual level, it is also possible that Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman and anyone else who have historically been involved in worldly living, spiritual apostasy, or serving our fleshly nature of sin, idolatry, and separation from God. Jesus is saying that none of these marriages to sin have worked out and they will continue to fail. By logical extension, Jesus is holding out the offer of a spiritual relationship by grace through faith in him that will never fail. Even though the Samaritan woman only recognizes the basic truth of Jesus' statement, she nonetheless recognizes Jesus as a prophet. Next, in verses 20 through 24, the Samaritan woman attempts to change the discussion to the debate over whether worship is proper at Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. Quote, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, 
the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth." Unquote. In other words, while we can all debate over whether Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem is the legitimate place where God should be worshipped, the greater question is how we approach God. That is, if we pick the correct geographical location, but attempt to approach God incorrectly, then we face the reality of God's wrath, death, and eternal separation. However, it is possible to approach God anywhere geographically and be accepted, provided that we approach in a correct manner. Jesus is here pointing to himself, his propitiatory sacrifice, and his finished work upon the cross as being the method by which we, by faith, approach God, have fellowship, and are accepted by His covering grace. Then, in verses 25 and 26, we see the culmination of this, quote, must-needs, unquote, appointment. Quote, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he, unquote. Despite the many disputes and debates between the Samaritans and the Jews, they had in common that they both agreed that they were waiting for the Messiah of the Old Testament who would reconcile all things and provide salvation to his people. Here, Jesus had gone further in several minutes to reconciliation than had anyone else in several hundred years. The use of the words, quote, I know, unquote, by the Samaritan woman seemed to go beyond mere intellectual awareness of a coming Messiah to a personal expectation and faith in a coming Messiah. Further, by virtue of the fact that the Samaritan woman says that the Messiah, quote, will tell us all things, unquote, the fact that Jesus had, in fact, revealed two significant things to the woman seems to strongly suggest that the woman was asking Jesus a question couched in what appears to be a statement. The statement is, quote, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things, unquote. The inferred question from the Samaritan woman to Jesus is, quote, 
You have told me many things which only the promised Messiah would know. Are you the promised Messiah? Unquote. In verse 26, Jesus answers the statement or question by saying, quote, I that speak unto thee am he. Unquote. Looking at the original Greek in verse 26, Jesus says, quote, Jesus is saying unto her, I am, ego I may, the one speaking to you, unquote. In other words, Jesus is here not only confirming that he is in fact the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews and the Samaritans, but in fact Jesus is 100% man and 100% God of very God. Jesus is the existing one, the one who is, the I will exist because I will exist. I exist because I exist. I am who I am. I am that I am. I will be who I will be. Or I am that which exists. For all intent purposes, the Samaritan woman has just been transported 2,000 years back to her own personal encounter with God in the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in